0: If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 6, where we're actually going to polish off of four names, Lord willing. If Jesus comes between now and the end of the sermon time, then it's okay, we won't finish up. Otherwise, if I live that long, we're going to get through four more names. And as you find that verse, the last verse of John's Gospel reads this, thus, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now what is amazing about this statement is that someone I read did a study where they tried to compile in kind of a real-time sequence all the instances that are recorded in the four Gospels. And when they put them all together, they figured it covered about seven days of Jesus' life. That's all. A week. A week. And that is why John says, listen, we didn't even scratch the surface here. All the books in the world couldn't contain all the neat things we saw. And what is neat is, is that there were 12 men who wandered around and saw all the neat things that Jesus did. And you can imagine all the miracles and the cool teaching things and the, you know, being, trying to be cornered by the Jewish experts and how he just undid them in his wisdom and, and just all these incredible things, people coming to repentance and faith that they witnessed and, you know, they just couldn't write it all down. They could barely just get the chronology down as they wrote their gospels. But what else is interesting is that Even though Judas betrayed Christ, we know that at least 12, more men than 12, were with Jesus all the time. We know that because in Acts chapter 1, when they go to choose Matthias, one of the qualifications is, is let's pick one of the men who has been with us the whole time. And this tells us that there were men who wandered around with Jesus and the apostles the whole time And they're never mentioned in the Bible, except in that one spot, just barely alluded to men who saw it all. And the apostles, you know, they just didn't abandon their wives for three years. They took them along and they're never mentioned. And what's neat is, is when we get to heaven, we're going to talk to people who saw everything Jesus did. will not that be Great. You can sit down and say, oh, you were with them for the three years? Okay, well, why don't we just spend three years and you tell me everything? You know, it's not like you're going to run out of time. <laughs> and then you can go to each one and kind of get, you know, a little bit different angle of what was happening. And what is amazing is, is that the New Testament even mentions apostles, specifically chosen men. And it doesn't tell us anything about them either. Not only are there men who are not even mentioned and women who are not even mentioned, there are apostles who are specifically mentioned several times and it doesn't say anything about them. But they were there, they saw it all, and when we get to heaven, we can talk to them about it all. And as we've been doing character sketches on the apostles, we've been going through this list and we've been learning good practical truths just from their examples and their lives and just a few verses that are spoken of each of them. And as we come on the scene and we start looking at these apostles and we start scouring the gospels, there is a huge encouraging fact that we can all just feel comfort from. And that is the apostles were sinners just like us. They were proud and anxious and not trusting and groping for power and you know just all the things that you struggle with they struggled with and what is great is is jesus chose them anyway and he used them in a great way and this should be an encouragement to all of encouragement to all of us because we're all sinners we all have problems and yet god when he gets a hold of a sinner he can change them into something that he uses for his glory as watson says he is able to strike 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 a straight blow with the crooked stick. And you're the crooked stick. And what's neat is, is over a course of time, he's able to straighten you out. And, you know, uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, when he's talking about the gospel, he says, you know, there weren't many wise and there weren't many mighty and there weren't many noble, but God has chosen the things that are not to shame the things that are. You ever wonder why God didn't pick, you know, famous rabbis like Gamaliel or whatever, really smart people to do his work on earth? I'll tell you why. It was because he gets more glory for himself when he does things through nobodies. When a smart person does something, then everybody says, well, that guy's smart. That's why he was able to do that. But when a dumb person does something smart, then they have to say, well, That must be God. (laughs) And so that's why he uses people like us. Not very many wise, not very many mighty, not very many noble. And the apostles were all like that. And so we can have encouragement knowing that they were just sinners saved by grace, called to a certain task, which God, by his grace, enabled them to do. We have also learned that the apostles had more than one name. Almost all of them had more than one name. And this becomes kind of tricky when you're studying the Gospels, you're trying to figure out about the Apostles, and you learn that each of them had one or two or three names. And it's kind of confusing. It's very confusing. Some of the names they had were very popular names, which makes it even more confusing, because there's a lot of other people, maybe, in the Gospels which are named that. And so when you come to the apostles, you need to realize they're ordinary men. They're ordinary men with ordinary names and with nicknames and you know names like uh, Simon the Zealot um, and Matthew the Tax Collector. Uh, and son of, and surnames, and all these different names they have. And we have to search the scriptures to try and compile um, the correct information so we can speak accurately about them. But if you have your Bible, look at Luke 6, verse 12, and follow along as I read. And then we're going to be looking at Matthew, Thomas, James, as your, your bulletin says, and then also Judas, the son of James. We're going to add him on here also. And then that way next week we can devote an entire, an entire message to Judas. Maybe more than one, but one for sure. Alright, let's look at verse 12. It was at this time that he, Jesus, went off to a mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and chose twelve of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called The zealot and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So now we're going to come and look at Matthew, Thomas, James, and Judas, the son of James, but not in that order. We're going to start with the more obscure ones and then work towards Matthew and Thomas. The first one I want to look at is this. Um, Judas, the son of James. I mean, what do we know about Judas, the son of James? Oh, hardly anything. Luke just tells us there was a man named Judas, the son of James. But when you look at Matthew's account, Matthew, of course, Luke, says Judas, son of James, to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot, who's, you know, the one who betrayed Christ, and who wants not even be associated with that. Everybody, you know, kind of has a... A aversion to Judas now because he kind of ruined that name. It's kind of like you know who marries who who calls their daughter Gomer. You know you just don't do it. Um, and so there's all these qualifiers. And so Luke puts on there son of James. Matthew doesn't even use the name Judas or its shortened form Jude. He uses the name Thaddeus. Now, if you're studying, you come across, who is Thaddeus? Well, Thaddeus is Judas, the son of James, or Jude, the son of James. See how you start compiling names here? Mark does the same thing in Mark 3.18. John, in his gospel, mentions Judas, but then he adds the qualifying phrase, not Iscariot, in order to distinguish him from the bad guy, Judas Iscariot. In John fourteen twenty one and 22, it relates the only personal information we have about Judas, Thaddeus. In the New Testament, Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room says this. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then Has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world. So we know that Judas was inquisitive. At that time, the normal Jewish concept of Messiah is a guy raises up, he's got some good power. He conquers Rome, he sets up his kingdom, and Jesus has just told him, listen, I'm going to disclose myself to you, but not the world. And so Judas, son of um, James, Thaddeus, says to Jesus, how is this going to work? How are you going to conquer Rome and set up your kingdom in this world so that no one notices? He's totally, he has no idea what Jesus is talking about. He's just totally clueless and you can tell. So it's just an honest question, but I think we can ask, just ascertain from this question, a certain principle that, uh, we could apply to our lives. And that is this, uh, all of us need to hunger for the truth and seek out the truth. Like Judas, son of James, all of us need to do that. That is Christian. Uh, when you come to the Lord, you should want to know the truth. You should want to read your Bible. You should want to study it and meditate on it and search it out and hunt things down and find neat truths. You should use it like life's cookbook. You know, when you want to make a, a cake uh, or something like that, um, you know, you, you probably don't have all your, your recipes memorized. When well, you just go and you open up your cookbook and you follow the instructions. Or let's say, guys, you're going to, you know, tune up your old jalopy and you get out your timing light and, you know, you're hooking it up. Well, you probably don't have everything memorized and the the gaps of your spark plugs and the the, you know, point distribution. And so what you have to do is you have to look it up. Well, in the same way, when you're living as a Christian, you have to look up the answers to life in the book. And a lot of Christians have gotten away from this. They have a problem, and the first thing they do is go to a secular source. They go to friends. They go to every place but the book. And Judas, of course, went to Jesus. Jesus is no longer living, but he left us the book. And this is the cookbook. This is the the operations manual for life. And Judas wanted to know the answer. And one of my favorite texts, which exhort us to this end, is Proverbs 2. So turn there. Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 5. Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 5. Here Solomon writing to his son, teaching him how to have success in life and be wise in life, tells him how to discover the knowledge of God. That is to know God more so he can grow in holiness and righteousness and wisdom. And this is what he says, starting in verse 1 of Proverbs 2. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek for his silver and search for his hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Now here we have multiple verbs. Verbs are action words, things you have to do. Knowing God is not a passive thing. It is an active thing, and you have to do something about it. And notice the words, the verbs, the actions that you have to follow. He says, first, you have to receive God's words. Secondly, you have to treasure the commandments found in God's word. Third, you have to make your ear attentive to the wisdom of God's word. Four, you have to incline your heart to understand God's word. Five, you must seek to discern God's word. Six, you must lift up your voice to ask questions and gain understanding about God's word. Seven, you must seek God's word as silver. And eight, search for God's word. Like hidden treasure. And notice these words have passion in them, don't they? They have zeal. You know, people look for treasure like maniacs. You know, cry out, lift your voice. There is a passion there. There's a zeal. There's a desire, a hunger to know the truth. And this is what he says, you have to do. And then comes that little phrase, then. Then. You will discover the knowledge of God in verse 5. Then, then what? Then after you do those first eight things. So, growing in your knowledge, which causes you to grow in your godliness and your application of the word, doesn't happen by being passive. You can't sit at home in your easy chair and hit the clicker and grow in, you know, wisdom and knowledge and grace. There has to be a digging in the mine shaft of Scripture. You have to get in it, you have to study it, you have to work on it, and you have to do everything you can to try and absorb the truth. And the question is, Is that does that describe you in your life today? Last week, the week before, the week before that, are you digging in the scriptures? If you aren't, you can't ever expect to grow in your walk with Christ because it only comes through that means. You have to ponder and think about and meditate upon the scriptures. Paul reminds us of this in First Thessalonians chapter two, verse thirteen, where he says to the Thessalonians, "For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received, notice the same term he uses, uh, the Solomon uses in Proverbs uh, two one." That you received the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men but for what it really is. The word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. You receive the word of God and it changes you. It transforms you. It makes you more godly. So if you want to get real godly, then you have to get real into the word. The more you get into the word, the more godly you're gonna grow, and that's just how it works. People who get up in the morning and read the scriptures, who listen to sermon tapes on the way to work, who listen to you know, Christian radio and 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 study and go to Bible studies and disciple people and prepare for studies and read their Bible before they go to bed, those people are gonna grow more than the person who just comes and kind of gets the Jack Hughes sock in the face on Sunday. And then kind of you know, heals up the rest of the week. So they can come back and get another shot. And Judas, we learn, was inquisitive. He wanted to know the truth. He wanted to understand. And this is the quality that all Christians need to understand. Uh, that they need to seek the truth just like Judas, son of James. Alright, moving on. And then we have James, the son of Alphaeus, or James the Less. The New Testament mentions two or three or four or five, maybe six Jameses. Who knows? Um, it's a mystery. It's a mystery, and it's one of the all-time great mysteries of the New Testament. Who is James? Who is James? You know, where in the world is James, son of Alphaeus? Um, oh. Where is he in the pages of Scripture? Did he write the the the, the Book of James, or was that Jesus' brother? Or you know, I mean, where, where what is the, who is this guy? Well, a couple of the Jameses are pretty easy to understand. There's James the son of Zebedee. Now we already looked at him, he is one of the sons of thunder, brother of John, who was martyred early on in the church's history, one of the, the first people, the apostles to be martyred, Acts, I think 12.1 describes him being martyred, and so James, we know about him, and uh, he's pretty easy. Then we also know, since we just covered it, there's a man named Judas, the son of James, and we don't know anything about that James, except that he was the father of Judas, but from there, it gets pretty interesting. And it gets complicated. Because Luke 6.15 and Matthew 10.3 both mention that one of the apostles was James, the son of Alphaeus. This brings us to one of the most difficult and complex mysteries related to the apostles in the New Testament. And if you like a good mystery, you're going you're to love this. This is for sleuths. First, you have to discover... How many James are in the New Testament? Or you could put it this way. When the New Testament mentions James. Which one are they talking about? Which James are they talking about? James the son of Alphaeus? James the less? James the son of Zebedee? James the Lord's brother? Some other James? See, this is what's kind of strange. It's interesting as, as you start looking at, at the New Testament, you define, you find out that there are all sorts of James. James was a common name, just like it is today. And so we have these men sprinkled throughout the pages of the New Testament, and you have to do all of this sleuth work to find out who in the world the James is in the passage that you're talking about, because if you're gonna do a character sketch on somebody, you gotta know what passages are speaking of them. So what we're going to do is we're going to do some mystery work here, some, uh, you know, uh, problem solving. Uh, and so you will pretend that, you know, you are uh, you know, who is the sidekick of, uh, of uh, oh, what was his name? Watson, you are Watson. OK, and so let's go and see if we can figure this out. Turn to Matthew 27, 56. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-six. Now, this is the context here of Matthew twenty-seven fifty-six is the account of Jesus' crucifixion. And in Matthew 27, 56, what's going on here is we are getting told who is standing there observing Jesus being crucified. And it says this in verse 56. Among them was Mary Magdalene, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So here we have two Marys mentioned. Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph. So Mary, who had two sons, James and Joseph. And Mary Magdalene. And they're there witnessing Jesus' crucifixion along with the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Her name is not given. So you take Matthew's account and compare it then with Mark's account in Mark 15:40. Turn over there. Mark 15, verse 40. Same context, Jesus being crucified. Mark says this in verse 40 of Mark 15. There were also some women looking on from a distance. That is, they were watching Jesus slowly die on the cross, and among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome. Now, Mark, instead of saying the mother of the sons of Zebedee, just gives us her name, Salome. He calls James, James the Less, to distinguish him from James the son of Zebedee, and he calls Joseph, Joses, which is another form of the same name, Joseph. Now if you were to combine these two texts they might read something like this There were also some women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James the less and Joseph and Salome the mother of the sons of Zebedee Now you take Matthew and Mark's account and then you add John's account to them one more clue John 19 verse 25 Turn there. Same context again. Jesus is being crucified. Parallel account describing who was there watching. The text says, therefore, verse 25, the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Notice that John lets us know that Jesus' mother was also there standing by the cross. What was Jesus' mother's name anyways? Watson? Mary. There you go. So John describes Jesus' mother's sister and her name was? Yeah, that is interesting. Two daughters with the same name. No wonder we're confused. And she is described as the wife of Clopas. Now, if we add this information to our all-inclusive translation, it might read something like this. There were also some women looking on the cross from a distance, among whom were Mary, the mother of Jesus, her sister Mary, wife of Clopas, The mother of James and James the less and Joseph, Mary Magdalene and Salome, mother of the sons of Zebedee. And John could have added my mom. Now, isn't that interesting? Well, it's not as interesting as as we go on a little bit further. So we have Mary, the wife of Joseph, the mother of Jesus, and her sister Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, in addition to that, Salome, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, John's mom. What we learn from this is that Jesus' mother, Mary, had a sister with the same name as hers, and she was married to a man named Clopas. Now here is just a fascinating little tidbit. The name Clopas comes from a Hebrew name and it can be pronounced two different ways. The first way is Clopas. The second way is Alpheus. I don't know how that works. It just does. (laughs) So, we are talking, of course, about James, the son of Alpheus. And we have seen two texts that mention Mary, the wife of Clopas or Alphaeus had two sons, James and Joseph. That is the James, the son of Alphaeus, that we are talking about. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, was the aunt of James, the son of Alphaeus. This means that James, the son of Alphaeus, was Jesus' cousin. Oh, fascinating, isn't it? But more amazing still is that Matthew... We learn a little bit about him. We're going to get to him in a minute, but we have to talk about him now. And that is Matthew had another name. Do you remember what his other name was? Matthew and Levi. Levi. And we saw this. If you look back at Luke 5, verse 27. We were here several years ago. In Matthew 5, 27, it says talking about the call of Levi or Matthew, that after he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Then in verse 29, and Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table. We went through that in some detail. The point is, is when you compare that text, and you compare it to Matthew 9, 9, where Matthew himself describes his call. Matthew describes his call with these words. And Jesus went from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. You discern that Matthew and Levi are one and the same man, name, or one of the same people. They're the same man. Um, they have the different names, but the same, same man. Then if you look at Mark, 214, and you gotta look there because this is just really fun. Mark also calls Matthew Levi, but in Mark two fourteen, we read this. Again, the call of Matthew is being referred to, verse fourteen, and as he passed by he saw Levi, the son of Alpheus. Alpheus. What is that? Do you mean to tell me that James the son of Alphaeus and Matthew are brothers? Could be. But it would seem strange, but it could be. We know that Matthew 2756 and Mark 1540 both talk about Mary, the wife of Clopas, having two sons, James and Joseph. Now, it doesn't mean she didn't have more. So either Matthew was not mentioned because he was a tax collector, or maybe Matthew had another name named Joseph. I, you know, that seems kind of desperate, doesn't it? Or it could just be coincidence that Jesus happened to pick two men with the same father's name, Alpheus. That is interesting, isn't it? But if. Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, are brothers, then that would mean Peter and Andrew, the sons of Jonas, we know they're brothers. James and, and, uh, or uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were brothers, and that would mean Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, were brothers. But even if that isn't the case, we know at least that James, the son of Alphaeus, was the cousin of Jesus, and Mary was his aunt. The word James, the less, uh, doesn't mean he was less significant, but just that he was shorter. It means little or small. He wasn't very tall. And so that's what we know about James. Very interesting. Very fascinating. That's all. Okay, moving on. Matthew. Matthew means gift of God. Matthew means gift of God. And he appears in all the lists of the apostles... And as we have already learned, he is called Matthew and Levi. In Matthew nine nine, Matthew describes himself as sitting at a tax booth when Jesus called him. In Matthew ten thirteen or ten three, Matthew describes himself as the tax collector, which was a very bold statement. We've already noted in Mark 2.14 that he was also the son of Alphaeus. We don't know if he was the same son of Alphaeus as James, the son of Alphaeus, or not. Um, If he was, uh, then we have three sets of brothers among the apostles and some apostolic nepotism going on there. Immediately following Matthew's call, the Gospels tell us that, uh, both Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus was found eating with tax collectors and sinners. Luke tells us why. It's because Matthew held a party right right after Jesus called him. He was going to leave the tax collecting business, and so he gathered all of these friends of his together, this great horde of tax collectors, and said, guys... I'm going out of the business. And I want you to meet the reason why. And he introduced them all to Jesus. It describes that in Luke five twenty-nine and 30. And that is where the Pharisees had problems with Jesus grumbling because he was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And you can understand why the Pharisees didn't like the tax collectors. The tax collectors were low-down, no-good traders, most of them. You see... If you wanted to be a tax collector, you had to buy into the franchise to be a tax collector for Rome. Rome said you need to accumulate a certain amount of money, and then it was kind of unspoken. Anything you collect above and beyond that, of course, you can keep for yourself. And so being a tax collector was one of the most lucrative businesses anybody could be in. It was a prime, prime job to have if you had no morals. And so tax collectors were hated because they not only took what Rome acquired, which the Jews didn't like giving Rome their money so that Rome could oppress them and rule over them, but also took more than was required robbing from the people. Worse than a tax collector, though, was a Jewish tax collector. Where a Jew with absolutely no morals or love for his own people would, for the sake of money and because of greed, buy a franchise and rob from his own countrymen. And that is how Matthew describes himself. A low down, no good, bottom of the barrel, dregs of the earth, tax collector and we know when you survey the gospels that that tax collectors were considered the most reprobate and worst people on earth for instance jesus lumps them with harlots in matthew 21:31 they were the greatest sinners in society. In Matthew 18, 17, Jesus lumps tax collectors in with pagans. In Matthew 9, verses 10 and 11, tax collectors are lumped together with sinners. And in Matthew 5, verse 46, as he's telling the the crowd that they need to love um, other people, and he says, and don't just love those who love you. He says, even tax collectors do that. Even the lowest Most reprobate scum love each other. And the reason he picked them is because they were considered at the bottom the amoebas of society. They were despised terribly. In Luke chapter 7 verse 34, Jesus describing the attitude of the Jewish leaders towards him says that they accused him of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, which in their mind was treasonous. How could you be a friend of somebody who was a traitor and robbed their own countrymen for the sake of personal gain and pleasure? And you need to know that the tax collectors didn't go around collecting taxes. They would hire thugs. They would just sit in their big houses and get drunk and send their thugs out to go beat the money out of people. I were here for Matthew. Give us money. And if they did say no, then they'd start trashing their place and they would take by force whatever they wanted. And they could do it legally because they were commissioned by Rome to, quote, collect taxes. And this leads us to an observation about Matthew's character. The only person who describes Matthew with the phrase, Matthew, the tax collector, is Matthew. He's the only one. He he, writing about him, his own self, puts that most despised epitaph right on his name so that everybody knows, I am Matthew, the dregs of the earth. Now, why would he ever do that? Because he's humble. That's why. And we've seen this in other apostles and we see it in him. By the time he writes his gospel, he, like Paul, boasts in his weakness Just as Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the greatest of sinners. I'm a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church. He boasts in his weakness. Why? Because he's humble. You see, the humble person realizes that anything good in them comes from who? God. And so they give all the credit to God for the good things. The bad things, the humble person does what? That's me. I'm the bad guy. God's the good guy. When I did this good thing, praise be to God. Bad thing, that's me. And all of us need to be this way because God is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And if you weren't here when we talked about that earlier, get the tape. Secondly, we learn from Matthew that Matthew left all to follow Christ. He, out of all the apostles, had the most to lose from following Jesus. He had great wealth, great power. He had the backing of Rome. He had a coveted position. He was rich and wealthy like Zacchaeus. And when Jesus called him, he just turned away from it all to follow Jesus. And he had that big party to let everybody know, Hey, I'm out of there. It's over. And there, I'm telling you, there would have been people waiting a mile long to get his job. Because there were a lot of traitorous Jews who for money would have sold their souls, just like there is people in the world today. And this teaches us a principle. When you follow Christ, it, it costs you. We are confused about this today. Salvation doesn't cost you. Being saved, that Price was paid by the precious blood of Christ. He shed his blood to pay the price to redeem you from your sins. But being saved costs you everything. Not to be saved, but being saved. And you need to understand that. Turn over to Luke 14. Luke 14 Here in Luke 14, Jesus is going to tell us about the cost of discipleship. Now, I'm just going to read this and I want you to just note. Jesus is using some a little hyperbole here that is he's he's um exaggerating uh, at points in order to drive a point home, but the principle is crystal clear. And he's talking to a huge crowd of people who are following him. You'd think he'd want to say nice things to him, you know, to them, so not to drive him away. I mean, he wasn't very secret sensitive as we find out. He is very straightforward. He gives the hardest calls of anybody to follow. He is clear. He is definitive. He gives illustrations to make sure they know exactly what he's saying. And this is what he says. Look at verse 25. Now, large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and he said to them, Now just imagine the look on their faces. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Could you imagine the shock of the crowd after hearing that? How people just started milling away from the back and wandering away? Oh man, this guy's psychotic. Hate your father, mother, your your own children. I mean, the in-law thing might be more understandable. <laughs> but hey, Jesus says it doesn't matter what relationships they are or how close they are. You got to be willing to hate them. He didn't even say be willing. He just just hate. Hate. Interesting, isn't it? He goes on to say, verse 27, "...whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples." Well, they saw people regularly get nailed to a cross and crucified. And how that happened is, is they would get the cross, they would make people carry their own cross to the place of their own execution. What he's saying is, you got to be willing to die to you, or you can't be my disciple." Then he gives two illustrations, just in case anybody's confused. Look at verse 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, he is not able to finish, and all who observe it begin to ridicule him. Saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king, when he sets out to meet another in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he has... Enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, conclusion here, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now that, people, is what it means to be a Christian. Does it cost anything? No. It costs everything. Not to be saved, but to follow Jesus. You see, Jesus is looking for people who are willing to give up all to follow him. He saves people who totally abandon this world and their sin to receive him. You know all those texts that you read in the New Testament that says repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. We've gone through them over and over again. What is that saying? Whatever it is you're holding on to, relationships, possessions, yourself, whatever it is you're holding on to, before you come to know Christ, that you must be willing to let go and turn to follow Jesus. Like John says, or yeah, Jesus says in John ten twenty seven, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They follow me. That's what sheep do. Sheep who love the shepherd, follow the shepherd. Sheep who don't love the shepherd, don't follow the shepherd. And so what Jesus is saying here is, listen, you need to be willing to give up all. All your relationships, all your possessions, and you die to you. Or you cannot be my disciple. Now, thankfully, he doesn't call us all to give up everything, but he does call us all to be willing to give up everything, every one of us. If there's anything standing between you and the Lord, it's between you and the Lord. And that has to go. It could be a daughter, it could be a son, it could be a hobby, it could be your wife, it could be your husband, it could be whatever it is, your favorite sin. The scriptures are clear. Jesus says it. Give up your closest relationship. Die to self. Give, be willing to give up all your own possessions or you cannot be my disciple. And guess what? This is exactly what Matthew did. And guess what? It's exactly what everyone needs to do. If you don't want to give up this world, if you don't want to give up your sin, if you think that you can just give lip service to Jesus and say, well, you know, I'll come to church every once in a while and I'll tell people I'm a Christian. And, you know, in your heart, you kind of play this money Hall, let's make a deal thing with God. What you're really telling God is, I want to do it my way. I don't want to do it your way. I want to have my sin. I want to have my certain things. And I'm willing to have you on my terms, which really translates, you don't want to be a Christian. And if you think you are a Christian, don't think you, don't fool yourself any longer. The demons believe the facts about Jesus. But that doesn't mean they're saved. Knowing the facts about Jesus, saying you agree with the facts about Jesus doesn't save you. It is a hard commitment to take up your cross and follow him. That's what repentance is, the dying to self and the following of Christ. True saving faith comes with a commitment. Faith is not just intellectual, it is volitional. It does something, and it clings to Jesus. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. So if you've never done that, the point being, you need to. Because Jesus makes it clear that you need to be like Matthew if you're going to be one of his disciples. You have to be like Matthew. Or Matthew had everything, he had the world. And then when Jesus called him, he turned his back and he followed after. Thomas. Finally, we come to Thomas, whose Greek equivalent name is Didymus. It means twin. And Thomas doesn't have very much said about him. In John eleven six, 6, when they're getting ready to go raise Lazarus from the dead, remember they called, they called for Jesus to come heal Lazarus, and Jesus purposely waited so Lazarus could die. And Jesus said, and you know why I let him die? I let him die so you could believe, because Jesus was going to go raise him from the dead. They didn't understand this then, but they did after the fact. And Jesus wanted him to die, wanted him to be in the grave for four days so that he could go and raise him from the dead. And Thomas makes this comment in John eleven six 6 right after Jesus explains this let us also go that we may die with him now you may think who die with Lazarus or I mean what's going on here well simply this up to this point in John's gospel John is very careful to let us know that the Jews were increasing in hostility at the end of chapter 10 they're just they're, they're wanting to kill him and from John 11 onwards John focuses on Jesus's private ministry and what Thomas is saying is, well, right now we're in Perea on the other side of the Jordan, east of the Jordan, and we're pretty safe here. Lazarus lives in Bethany, and Bethany is two miles east of Jerusalem. So if we go with Jesus to help him, you know watch him or whatever, witness what he's going to do with Lazarus, they didn't know at that point. If we go there, then we're going to be putting our life in danger So let's go die with the Lord. That's why he says that, which is the exact same lesson we learned from Matthew. He was willing to give up all to follow Christ. We see the same thing in Thomas. But of course, the greatest incident of Thomas that we can learn from is his statement in John 20. You got to turn there and we'll finish up with this. John 20. In John 20 verse 24 and Jesus has risen from the dead, appeared to his apostles, but Thomas, of course, wasn't there. And John writes, but Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples are saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of his nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. You know what he is? An empiricist. An empiricist is somebody who will not believe anything unless they see it and taste it and touch it. Touch it. they got to have physical evidence, otherwise they will not believe. I mean, he was born in Missouri, the show-me state. And he said, show me. Now what's amazing is, is we're going to look in verse 26, that this went on for eight days. He's in a house with all the apostles who have seen the risen Lord and these women who have seen the risen Lord. And you know all they're talking about for eight days. Man, that was incredible, man. We saw Jesus for the day. I'm not believing. I'm not believing. I'm not. Unless I... And you show me. Missouri. (laughs) But this is what I want to point out to you as we... Look at Thomas, none of the apostles, none of the apostles believed in Jesus until they saw him in his risen state. None of them believed he rose from the dead until they saw him. Thomas was not the doubting exception. He was just the doubting average. They all doubted. And none of them believed that Jesus rose from the dead until they saw him. That changes, that levels the playing field. But this is what's neat. Thomas, after he did see Jesus, made the greatest statement of Jesus' deity found anywhere in the New Testament. Remember what he said? When he saw him and he appeared and Jesus said, Here it is. Verse 27, he said to Thomas, reach here your finger, see my hands, reach here your hand, put it in my side, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. He got it. He got it. That is exactly correct. And this is the lesson we learn from Thomas, quote, doubting Thomas. And that is, he came to the place where he realized that Jesus was not just a great, powerful prophet gifted by God, that he was the very God of gods. And you need to believe the same thing. And if you don't believe the same thing, you can't go to heaven. Jesus said in John eight twenty four, unless you believe that I am, I am the I am, the memorial name of God, Jehovah, the, here's a good one, the ineffable tetragrammaton, unless you believe that of me, you will die in your sins. Knowing Jesus and believing Jesus is God is essential to getting to heaven. You can be a Jehovah's Witness. You can be very sincere, very zealous. But you are not going to heaven if you don't believe Jesus is God. It is what is called the Arian heresy. A man named Arius believed the same thing. So here's what we learned from these men this morning. That we need to seek God in the pages of Scripture to be zealous in understanding the knowledge of God, which is to dig in the book. Secondly, we need to leave here with a commitment to clothe ourselves in humility because God is opposed to the proud. That is, we give God credit for anything good and we take credit for anything bad. Third, we leave here with a willingness to give up all to follow Christ and die if necessary for Him. And for we leave here with a firm faith that Jesus is the great I am, the very Lord God of heaven and earth. Next week, Judas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we're able to learn from these men. What great, encouraging truths we get from them. If there's anybody here, Father, who has never repented of their sins and denied themselves, taken up their cross to follow after Jesus I pray that they would do that today. There are people here who are thinking they can redefine the gospel and redefine what it means to be a Christian and keep their sin and keep the world and yet go to heaven, shake them out of their delusion. For the rest of us, may we seek you with the whole heart. May we be humble and may we constantly remind ourselves that the risen man, Jesus Christ, is also the very God, creator of heaven and earth who we will see face to face someday and rule and reign with him in his kingdom. May we rejoice over that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you are a visitor, please stop by at our visitor center and uh, get some information there. If you need somebody to pray with you, we have councils over here.